fall class last year with, with Steve Brake and he's if you know Steve he's you know he's Mr. Big Idea right he's, he never goes <laughs> never goes goes small on anything so we, we talked about establishing a center here at Stanford with, with a few lines of effort where we, we could you know coming off the precedent of our hacking for defense experience why, why can't we develop and scale national security innovation more broadly you know we, we look at our pro- programs like hacking for defense hacking for diplomacy hacking for uh, gosh climate we've done a number of classes but Stanford at the risk of sounding a bit elitist I would say it's just an amazing place it's it's amazing students which we have everywhere but it's it's i think it's unique position here you know the nexus of you know of, the, of a great university and here in silicon valley with access to you know, all the emerging technologies welcome to the jess larson show where i interview innovators and leaders today on the show i've got joe felter joe thanks for doing this thanks for having me on just so i'm gonna read a little bio that the pr folks sent over and then have you correct me or or Hit the highlights I miss, okay? Sure. Okay, Joe Felter is an educator, researcher, and entrepreneur with over 30 years of senior organizational leadership and management experience, including 15 years at the nexus of Stanford University in Silicon Valley. Joe's the founding director of the Gordian Knott Center for National Security and Innovation at Stanford and co-creator of Hacking for Defense, a defense innovation-focused academic curriculum currently taught at more than 60 universities across the country and internationally. A former U.S. Army Ranger and Special Forces officer, Joe served in a variety of special operations assignments with combat deployments to Panama and Iraq and Afghanistan. From 2017 to 2019, Joe served as the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Southeast for South Asia and Southeast Asia and Oceania. Joe's a West Point graduate with a master's degree from the Harvard Kennedy School and a PhD from Stanford University. How'd I do? Uh, that, that sounds great, Jess. I, I uh, appreciate the, the intro. And, you know, for people who are regular listeners, you do a lot with Steve Blank and, and Pete Newell and some other folks that we've had here on the show. Absolutely. They're Close friends, colleagues, and kind of, we, we, we like to consider ourselves, uh, you know, kindred spirits and, and, and co, co-insurgents here and, and some of the efforts we're working on. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the Gordian Knot Center. I think what you guys are doing there is, is really important. Maybe we could back up a little bit. Let's start with your, your career in the Special Operations Forces. How did you know that's where you wanted to serve? Wow, just well, thanks. You know, I didn't really know I wanted to join the, the military, go going way back. But when when I got in and I'm going to West Point and coming out, I believe it or not, I didn't, I didn't feel really like like I was just destined to be a, in the conventional military. And the special operations community just seemed like exciting, amazing people, great mission. So I had, I had, a, I had a real privilege to start out after my first assignment in Korea to, to join the Ranger Regiment, where I served for a few years. I'm also just just missing Pete Newell, who was in the same battalion, but I served in the Third Ranger Battalion. As we talked earlier, some some amazing folks. When I get it in there, there was a Major Stan McChrystal Operations Officer, uh, Captain Tony Thomas, who later became a SOCOM commander, was my company commander. Just just some amazing people serving, just just dedicated to the mission and, and just felt very privileged to be part of that. Me personally, I, I, I love the Ranger missions, but the, a lot of those were measured in, in seconds and minutes, you know, sliding down a rope and, uh, you know, going after uh, some people that, you know, we needed to capture or... Yeah. or you know, otherwise take off the battlefield. But I, I always uh, admired special forces, you know, the Green Berets. I, I, I like the, uh, the the intercultural aspect of it, you know, the, the working by, with, and through of the local population and, and you know, missions defined not in minutes, seconds and minutes, but but months and years where you go in and, and work with with the local population and kind of do the, you know, try to get get others to, to, to you know, help empower others to, to advance their interests, which are were also congruent with U.S. security interests. So I really enjoy working in, in the special forces. And then, you know, from there, you get old fast in the special operations community. Community. So I had a chance to branch out and do some other things later in my career, but 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 a real privilege to join the special operations community. Just just you know the the, the talent, that the people, the the dedication to the mission, and just the 
amazing people get to work with there. So, you know, something I'll always treasure. Yeah. You know, I feel really lucky that I get to meet so many of you guys from the community. One of the questions I like to ask is kind of the mental game of getting in. Like, and I don't know if you found Rip harder, getting in Rangers or Q course for SF or, or whatever. Actually, which one of those would you say was tougher? Just that's a real tough. They're, they're, they're all different and kind of designed for, for different things. So, you know, I think you, you don't want to sugarcoat. You, you, you want to, you're not doing anyone any favors if, if oh. folks in that aren't really prepared mentally, physically, or, or otherwise for the mission. So you need to, you need to have a high bar and, and you need to test people. And, you know, our, our folks in, in the, in the community are, are very good at developing tests to, to help select the types of individuals that are going to succeed in, in those organizations. So again, I think there's di different missions. You mentioned RIP, you mentioned the qualification. They're, those are just you know, designed to, to select people for, for slightly different missions and prepare them for, for slightly different missions, but, but they're all challenging and they're all, you know, designed to make, okay. get our best, our best folks in those, those positions that are, that are, the stakes are just too high, not, not to, to make sure we have high bar to get, getting into them. Well, let me ask it a different way. RIP, Ranger Indoctrination Program, pretty, pretty grueling. When it got tough there, what did you tell yourself? Or when you think about how you made it through when so many others don't, what do you credit that to? Yeah. And again, I, I came in as a, a lieutenant at, at the time oh, okay. of Ranger Orange. It was, it was, the officers had a slightly different uh, program. And, and to, to join the Ranger Regiment as an officer, you had to have served as a platoon leader or in a, in, in the position you were you were aspiring to, to do in the Ranger Regiment. So you couldn't come in right off, right out of basic training, like, like some of the, the RIP need, needs to, to be a little different because you're getting people right out of basic training in Airborne School. Also different, kind of a different demographic, if, if you will. And just, and the, but so, so, you know, I, I, you know, things got tough, but you know, just like, you know, the, the Ranger create, you just, just want to keep, keep going and, and to do your best and hope that you, you meet the standard and don't expect you to you know, cut any slack, you know, you're going <laughs> to. You're gonna be, you know, it's 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 tough by by design because the mission's tough. And and as as a ranger officer, you're leading, you know, America's best you know, rangers, and, and they deserve quality leadership. And you want to make sure you're up to the task. And it's it's a real privilege to serve that organization. And I, I was humbled to be uh, to get through that and have the, have the privilege of working that that group for for several years. Well, and I know it's different for different people. We yesterday on the show we had Kyle Lamb, yeah. and he actually found the Q course harder for him than unit selection because like unit selection, he felt like it was. Very very much up to him. And at Q-Cars, there's so much cooperation and guys of different sizes and capabilities and it stretched him in different ways. He, he actually found that more difficult. What was, yeah. what was getting into SF like for you? You know, I guess I'd share that a little bit because the Q-Cars, you know, the, some are, and, I'm, and, 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 you know, there's a difference. There's, there's a selection phase it, for, to get into the Q-Cars, which I think maybe what is referring to where that really is. It's the team week of, of that selection phase. And again, it's been some time since I've been there and I'm told it's, it's still very similar, but it has evolved. But yeah, it, you've got to re rely on a team. And I think, uh, you know, being a, a, a star performer as an individual is important, but if you can't translate that into being a team player, then maybe that's not the type of person that they want in, in those ranks. So, so I think, I think Sergeant Major Lowe is pr probably, I'd share his assessment in comparing those two, two experiences. Well, I've a related question. To me, it, I, I've made the observation that compared to my friends from Big Army or, or arrests across the DOD, that the kind of folks that want to do special operations forces, that they get into, and regardless of the branch, are much more likely to be like somewhat rebellious, innovators, entrepreneurs, action sports athletes, but, but really like so many of them come out and go for entrepreneurship instead of a job, or they're, they're just much, much more likely to, I don't know, it just feels like there's a DNA similarity for 
for the, like the true blooded entrepreneurs and those, those folks who really excel in the, in the special operations community. Do you, do you see that or do you see I, I say the same qualities or the same appeal uh, of, of the special operations community is, I think, appeal of being an entrepreneur. If you had to compare special operations to, the, you know, the big military, if you will, versus, you know, a, the startup world to, you know, maybe a big established company. I, I think that, that those are good comparisons. Uh, some in the army that, that you know, I'll, I'll call, you know, my experience is army, but big army or a big Navy Air Force, I imagine I have similar it's very different than when you come in as a special operator. You you want to operate a little more independently, a little little longer leash, a little more. Maybe you're comfortable with some ambiguity there. You're you're you're, you're willing to 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 you, you can thrive in, with an uncertainty and, and, and ambiguity. Work. I think some people that select and I'll use the army as like, a big army. They're they're more comfortable with a little more structure and a little know, know where they stand in the hierarchy, whatnot. And and unfortunately, there, boy, there's there's no ceiling, right? You you can you can go big. I mean, I live here in Silicon Valley. You know, just within a couple of miles of where that the Googles and the Facebooks and, and all the other big companies were hatched. And, and I, I teach students here that at Stanford that boy, they, they think there's no, there's no ceiling on, on what they can accomplish. And, and they see it in some of their past, you know, alums and, and, and their current uh, classmates are going after, but, but back to your question, I think special operations and entrepreneurship do, do share a lot, a lot of us of the same appeal and, and attract that the, you know, many of the same types of individuals who just want to get in get after work hard, take initiative. Things are uncertain and they're comfortable with that. And, and they're going to just work hard to accomplish a mission. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I'm interested in that. I, I actually would love to hear like, you know, do whatever you're comfortable with. Like, I'd love to hear some, some maybe more intense downrange story, you know, when you're being deployed. And then I'd love to hear how something like that prepares you for uncertainty in other parts of your life as you've, you've gone down these other areas. Is that okay? Yeah, it just, you may not see through the camera or some of my, the, the grays on the side of my head. So uh, with all respect to, to the younger generation of special operators who, who were commissioned or, or who, you know, matriculated into special operations we post 9-11, who saw nothing but combat, you know, and just have enormous respect for, you know, my sliding scale young for, for those who joined the military in the last 20 years. It's just been just an extraordinarily challenging environment. You know, I did serve in Iraq and Afghanistan at a, at a bit more senior position, but you know, my, my, uh, my range platoon time, I did, did, you jumped into Panama. That was, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, or at least a good night of some, some intensity jumping out of that plane and then, you know, some following operations, but, but, uh, boy, it pales in the comparison to, to the multiple mission, you know, it, it, a range of platoon leader or special forces detached commander that, that, you know, d during the, the, this last 20 years of war, especially in the first 10 incredible experience. So I can, I can, well, experiences, but I, I, you know, if, I wasn't a team leader, I was a team leader, you know, at, at the height of the, the, the last where I was, you know, working there as a, you know, lieutenant colonel, colonel. I had some experiences, but uh, if you want some adrenaline-packed uh, uh, experiences, I might have to go way back to, you know, my time. Well, I think you're being humble there because we had 2nd Battalion, former unit operator Tom Bigley on the, on the show who jumped into Panama as well as a Ranger. Yeah, we went on the same, we went into the same objective, the Rio Hato, the 2nd Battalion and, and my friend company from 3rd Battalion. And, and he, you know, and then he later was over in Afghanistan and Iraq and and he he puts them on a similar yeah. level. I mean, duration is obviously different, but what was that like your first night? Well, you know, you're speak to that Panama. I mean, it was a lot of uncertainty and you know, we, I was in the first airplane in, which actually turned out to be a good thing because they, once they finally realized what was going on with some of the later airplanes that, that got hit hardest, but 
you know, we didn't know. We 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 started taking you know ground fire, and, and for all we knew, we were going to lose you know entire C one thirty full of of you know of our elite Ranger regiments of soldiers. And and for people not familiar, you know, how many Rangers going to be on a giant airplane like that? Yeah, you know, sixty to seventy. You know, fully laden with, with you know c- combat load. We carried. We had a reserve of parachutes, not because we would have time to pull them, but in case we got shot down, had to bail out. We were just jumping in too low. I think if our, if our mains didn't deploy, but yeah, it was adrenaline pack night you know we, we, it's the first time that america had deployed into combat operations uh, you know we, we went to grenada before that was seemed to be in the air so excitement adrenaline a sense of purpose but uncertainty when you get out that you know there's this uh, if you're not not to go into too much detail but you know u.s tracer rounds are, are red they, they they burn bright red and we're used to seeing them on ranges for the the the, the soviet weapons and chinese weapons are they the tracers are green so we jumped out with all the green tracers coming kind of wow this is a two-way range you know they're shooting back so that was kind of a and uh, certainly when you're in the plane, get it, you know, some, some, some Rangers tragically got, got, got shot in the airplane. And that was just, this is a reminder of, of the, the, the randomness and, and uncertainty of combat sometimes. And no matter how tough you are, there's, there's a lot of luck and timing involved. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about one of the guys who went on one of our undercover rescue missions in Central America with a local police force for child rescue. And, and the description. Take the chance to thank you for all you're doing for that great cause. It's, that's really impressive. You know, our, our other conversations. So uh, you don't have to be in the military to serve and I just just got to give you a hat tip there for, for your efforts. It's the best hobby ever. Like nobody thanks me for snowboarding, <laughs> even though it's so fun. And like, yes, snowboarding doesn't make me cry like child rescue does sometimes, but it's like the biggest high on ever to like literally save somebody's life or pull them out of just extreme abuse, systematic abuse. Like it's like the most fun thing you can do is help somebody out like that. So I don't need to thank you, but I appreciate it. So this individual described like, you know, watching all the, cause they hadn't served in, in the intelligence community or special operations. And they just watched a million spy books and read the nonfiction and the fiction and talked to the guys. And then in the first, in this first, you know, undercover operation, essentially, they, it was like surreal. And it was almost like they weren't quite there. And they were like, they, they weren't able to fully be themselves and analyze it afterwards and felt like they were putting the rest of the team at risk by being kind of so wooden and, and really gave themselves, the next operation was only like two days later. And they talked to themselves about like, you know what, this is not safe for everyone else. Like I've got to, I got to get my head in the game. And so they were able to just, it's almost like method acting, like just to really live their cover. And, and, and then the next one was great. They were an integral part. It was actually down from a team of seven to a team of two. And it's just this individual and one other. And they were able to like overcome the nerves and just be like 100% mission focused. And, and they were able to get done what they needed to get done there. Can you talk about this experience of like all the way, like the first time you're in a two, two-way range and maybe some, some emotions or some adrenaline comes in a way you hadn't experienced before and, and what you did to overcome that to, to stay on mission? In my experience, again, if you're in a leadership position, your, your biggest concern isn't for your own personal safety. It's, it's for those you're responsible for. And in some ways, it's a, it's a great distractor. You, you don't even think about personal risk or personal injury. You think about, am I going to do my job? Am I going to live up to the standards that, that my soldiers, in this case, our Rangers expect of their leaders? You know, again, I was, I was young lieutenant at the time, but, and so I think you're just focused on, you wanted to make sure you're doing, doing your job, doing your mission, being the leader that, that your, your supporters expect and, and contributing to the, to the broader mission. So yeah, I, I don't want to say, I mean, certainly there's, you know, 
No, no, that makes it. I, I don't want to say that you know you don't you don't you know yeah you're not afraid of anything, but I, it's it's uh, you're so focused on doing the mission and 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 and, and you know making sure you're you're, you're leading you're an effective leader that I I don't think that the fear isn't coming in there. I think there's a more of a fear of you know not living up to the standard and and not being the leader that your your rangers deserve that 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 you're focused on. So you really stay focused on on execution. But yeah, you see, on the first time you see a, a casualty, it just becomes very real. And again, this is going way back. And thanks for allowing me to go back to you know Panama invasion circa late 1989 it was it was you know my first experience in combat but i do remember you know seeing the first casualty and just realizing just feeling very fortunate and just oh wow this is real and then and then remember going back to in our case fort benning and seeing the families uh, of those who, who were lost and just feeling you know just feeling very fortunate and it's kind of like just that not to go off too long, but that's seeing private ryan you know the end when then tom hanks the ranger playing the ranger coming to commander says you know earn it you know you just feel like okay whenever you just feel like for the rest of your life you were given you know more opportunities than you just don't squander the opportunity that you were you were given by by coming out of that unscathed yeah coming back alive and you don't have to share overshare anything but were you guys like were you going to secure the prison were you going somewhere else what were you guys doing there? well just this is great i wish i had a heads up that you were going to go down this road because i, I do we did so we we, we, we jumped in that's like i was with a, a company b company third Raider Battalion jumped in with 2nd Ranger Battalion in a place called Rio Hato, which is a, a military airfield in Panama. It was, it was home to a, 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 very, a, a battalion called the Macho de Montes, as I recall, and they were very loyal to then President Noriega. And there was some concern that they might be one of the key units that could, could try to you know, support Noriega, or, or in fact, they may even have been hiding out there. So, so, so we, we went there, secured the airfield with some, some resistance. And again, it's, you can saw, call it low intensity conflict, but it's, you know, when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem low intensity at the time. <laughs> so when they're shooting back. Yeah. And people yeah. are, and you're losing people on your side, right? Right. So, and again, we didn't know going in there, there was, you know, we were very fortunate. They weren't able to get some of their, their anti-aircraft weapons operational in time. You know, some of our Spectre, our, our AC-130 gunships were able to neutralize some targets literally, you know, within seconds of, of the jump. So we were very, very fortunate. But secured the airfield and and and, and brought in following forces in our case for the 7th Infantry Division came in, came in the next day. And uh, the 1st Ranger Battalion and, and, and Charlie Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion, jumped into the civilian airfield, Teresa Tacoma, and I, I believe they were relieved by the, the 82nd Airborne Division, which uh, you mentioned Pete Newell, I believe he, that's where, where he he came in as the 82nd. So we we may have crossed paths at Panama and didn't even know it. Yeah, we did go on we gosh we went on to liberate a place called Pononome prison we went to gosh we went up to the north to to beads and and at this this town i remember going on christmas day to in the city of david they called it to be just kind of interesting to get one of norega's top lieutenants give him the chance to either surrender or or or, or bring him back even if he resisted and was that the was that the prison where the American hostage was? Yeah, was that a different one? So that was the that was the first night, and then that was a you've heard a lot about that. And I'm just blanking on the individual's name. They went into rest. Me too. One of our, 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 our special mission units that just did an extraordinary job, and and a real acknowledgement of some of the sacrifice from our, our task force 160. Some of the little bit of pilots really managed to get in there under fire and, and took took some took some took some casualties. It took red, but yeah, I'm just blanking on the individual's name. But it was quite a quite an opera. I remember when we were rehearsing for the mission, seeing that they were they built a mock up. Of, of it and, and I remember seeing that go down, but it was just an extraordinary example of just how just how effective our our, our special mission units or our, our operators c- can be and, and how they reacted to you know again what I believe one of the little birds t- took fire and crash landed I may get some of the details wrong but but just continued the mission and, and got to, I, mean, I believe the guy's last name is Muse M U S C and and got him out safely but again a great, great tribute to just the professionalism and, and, and capabilities of our special operators yeah. Well, I want to fast forward all the way forward right. for a minute. Thanks for the chat, uh, memory lane, and then talk about some of those formative experience. Yeah, by lieutenant yourself. Well, I want to talk about 
So A, will you give people a preview on what the Gordian Knot Center is? And then I've got some questions concerning what we just talked about and how it might relate. Yeah, sure. So yeah, Gordian Knot Center. So it is a, it is a center that we established here at Stanford University, you know, inspired by, and you mentioned, you know, Steve Blank and Pete Newell, a lot of it was inspired by our experience working with them here at Stanford and just this significant potential we have you know, here at Stanford and at universities across the country where, where, you know, students want to get involved. They want to support, they want to contribute. They may not want to join the military, but they want to get involved in national security. They, they want to get engaged in public service. And this is, that was really the genesis of, of our Hacking for Defense course that we, we piloted here at Stanford in 2016 and has since scaled to, gosh, just over 60 universities now. But based on that experience, we said, well, why don't we establish a, a center? Uh, and again, this was after a, a fall class last year with, with Steve Blake. And he's, if you know Steve, he's, you know, he missed your big idea, right? He's, he never goes, <laughs> never goes, goes small on anything. So we, we talked about establishing a center here at Stanford with, with a few lines of effort where we, we could, you know, come in uh, the precedent of our Hacking for Defense experience. Why, why can't we develop and scale the national security innovation more broadly? You know, we, we look at our pro programs like Hacking for Defense, Hacking for Diplomacy, Hacking for uh, gosh, Climate. We, we've done a number of classes. But Stanford, at the risk of sounding a bit elitist, I would say it's just an amazing place. It, it's it's amazing students, which we have everywhere. But it's it's I think it's unique position here, you know, the nexus of, you know, of, the, of a great university and here in Silicon Valley with access to, you know, all the emerging technologies and investors. We're, we're really kind of a, a ground zero of, 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 the, of, 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 you know, the innovation ecosystem here. So we thought we'd take advantage of that. And I, I can yeah. tell you some of our Lines of effort, but you're basically trying to you know develop and scale national security innovation education and, and trying to train national security innovators you know, here at Stanford. You know, raise their awareness of, of how they can use their you know their immense talents and focus on, on national security relevant efforts, and then you know use Stanford's convening power to, to, to you know for policy outreach, and we can bring together and convene really amazing amazing folks. There's a real comfort level of bringing you know the euphemism I use is bringing you know, the .gov and the .mil with the .com you know in an environment where they're comfortable having a candid dialogue and and. Uh, We've got a lot of examples of, of how our centers convene some really extraordinary events, conferences, and, and, and meetings that, that I think are, are really, really leverage our unique position here as, as a center. Um, I have big plans for it. I'm happy to go into more detail, but I'm, I'm, I'll over to you to maybe steer me in a direct here. Well, you know, the reason we've been more interested in, in partnering with you guys on the show and, and like repeatedly having, you know, leaders and, and thinkers from your space, you know, oh, and trying to give you guys more of a, of a megaphone is like, personally, I look at, you know, pre-Ukrainian invasion. There's a lot of my fellow Americans, a bunch of my friends who I, I think deeply discounted what Russia would be capable of. And, and they really just thought it was warmongering or hyperbole or alarmist that said like, no, this could become a problem again. And, you know, I think just now some of them are waking up to find out like that China isn't just the sleepy giant, like Ch China has ambitions that are that are not too friendly if you believe in making decisions for yourself, you know, and and yet I look at, you know, kind of the just the the leadership training and the, the coaching and stuff I've done across, you know, starting maybe 2012. So 10 years ago, all across Department of Defense, intelligence community. And there is constant problems with procurement of like, you know, I, I hear people talking about it's we invent this great technology in America. The other government, our enemies buy it off the shelf before I can get it. And and like it's not a big eats the small thing. It's a fast eats the slow. And, you know, this like just straight cots. Commercial off the self stuff 
that they're not allowed to buy if they're not like one of the special mission unit guys or something, you know? And we have all this capability and we don't currently have a system engineered for it, it feels like. Yeah, just you, you touched on so many areas that have been a real inspiration for us establishing the center and, and trying to harness uh, some of the talent that we have. So I don't know where to start. I, I could, I've always found a, a number of things that you just mentioned, but you know, I think one of one of the things you emphasize is just how different the threat environment is and, and the technologies that, that where we get the technologies, the military relevant technologies that we need to succeed. And going back further, I know this may be from our earlier discussion before we started the show. You know, wouldn't it be great if we evolved the point where, you know, we don't have to settle things on the battlefield, but, but I think Ukraine has reminded us, that, you know, that winning matters and that capable militaries are really important and, 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 you know, a capable military in, in this century and in these times, it's one that has to identify the, the types of emerging technologies that, that they need, you know, at, at speed and scale and, and be able to deploy it. And it, steer me back if I'm going off, off topic here, but you know, we, you, you mentioned Steve Blank. I, 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 I'd love to take credit for this, but I can't, but he has a great saying how, you know, the, the military military today it's it's a it's got world-class people world-class organization developing you know world-class solutions for a world that no longer exists and, and uh, i think and i love to quote him on that but what, what it means by that is the, our military is still kind of configured structurally institutionally you know our, our, our procurement system to, to to fight and win types of threats we had in the last century and we need to change the the the, the stakes are too high and, and the threat environment now is you know the, the technology that you know used to be developed in in you know government labs and big defense primes you know so we could build an better large end systems like aircraft carriers, submarines, whatnot. That was good for the last century, but but now we need to identify that technology that's being developed in the commercial te technology space and, and find a way to, to get at it, you know, identified and deployed at speed and scale. And that's a real challenge that requires a whole lot of change. And, and our, our center here is trying to, you know, give them that reality, try, try to help create, build the capabilities to do exactly that, to, to, to identify the emerging technologies that, that we need in the commercial space and get it out to the, those, uh, those operators that, that need to use it in the field and both not just the military, but across the the, the IC and, and broader USG. I can I can go off on a lot more here. Just want to steer me towards a question that, that you have, and I'll, I'll well, no, I just I guess part of the reason that I'm you know that I keep wanting you know that I'm trying to do this partnership with you guys and give you guys this extra platform is for my own friends who listen to the show because like I look at it this way like so I'm an American born abroad. I grew up in you know my dad's American, grew up in Canada. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't get the same sense of patriotism. I didn't get the kind of stuff until I moved to, came down as an 18-year-old to college. And for me, like, I love America. Like, if you are willing to take personal responsibility, there is no better country on earth. Like, I, I feel like there's no country on earth where it is so true that your past doesn't have to determine your future. You know, like, nobody's going to hand it to you here. Like, you are going to have to go get it yourself. But, but the, the idea of, like, limitless progression in these things, I feel like is more true here than anywhere. I'm such a fan, okay? And, and yet when I hear about stuff that's, like, actively going on against us, so many of my friends are uninformed. Like, I look at it this way, like, America has a whole bunch of problems. But when I look at the other four people who seem to have raised their hand that they want to run the world, it's like, I see China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. I, other people might see it differently, but those are the, to me, those are the other four that have, have kind of said, like, oh, I think we'd like to be in charge. And, like, if you're Iran or North Korea and you can't build, you can't massively increase your, your Navy, like what China has been doing or things like this, right? Like cyber is such an amazing tool. I mean, like my friends who read the Wall Street Journal, almost none of them saw that article a, a few weeks back when those two Iranian intelligence officers were convicted of going on social media and posing as proud boys that, and, and causing problems. Or, or, or like this month, there was a Russian intelligence officer who was found guilty of, of being on Facebook, 
and and trying to pose as like a ultra white nationalist and like represent that Americans are these racists to obviously to stir up and further divide us. So we'll fight with ourselves instead of paying attention to what they're doing. And, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, another one for me, I'll give a couple of my soapboxes and I'm going to turn it back to you. I look at like how few Americans know how easy it is to reverse the sewage in a, in a water treatment plant and make a whole city sick at once. You know, hardly anybody that I hang out with, my snowboarder buddies, my entrepreneur buddies, almost none of them ha have any clue how fragile our electrical grid is in this country. Like it is built for efficiency. It's not built for redundancy. I know you know this stuff, but it's shocking to me like how few people have, have really done the thought experiment on how much this country shuts down without electricity and nobody has a garden in their backyard anymore. People don't have sheep and cows like my grandpa in our little farm town 100 years ago. And no electricity for a few days, no food, no transport, no, no frozen goods, right? And you have a system that's like so built on efficiency, <laughs> it doesn't take much to bump that offline. And without that redundancy, like we are in a world of hurt. Anyways, there's my soapbox. Tell me if you see it differently. No, no, absolutely. Jess. I mean, I, first of all, thank, thanks for your patriotism. It's, it's, it's great to hear. I share the same sentiment. We're, we're, you know, it's, we're an experiment in democracy have been since our, our founding, but, but as you said, if you're, if you're willing to work hard and then I can't think of a better place to, to have those opportunities, you know, again, we, we can, we can improve it. It's, it's an amazing country and it's just great to hear some people recognize that. You know, I, I, you mentioned all the terrible things that could happen and, 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 uh, you know, you know, with our infrastructure and, and, you know, sewage and all the other examples, you know, I kind of compare this to, you know, thinking, you know, the, the threat of terrorism was, was here long before 9-11, but it did seem like it took a catastrophic event like 9-11. And I would argue, and this sounds a little bit crass, but we killed like just enough, just enough people died that day, I think, to get our attention and to mobilize a response. We could have handled a, a few hundred, but, but I think when several thousand were killed. So, so let's hope that we don't have, we don't need to have a wake up call like that and, and have that kind of a catastrophe before we mobilize our efforts and address the threats that you, that, that you mentioned in others. But, but sadly, I do think that to get our attention, sometimes it does take a shock, you know, an exogenous shock like that. So. And yet we have, you know, look at, look at the SolarWinds hack. Look yeah. at the, look at how many times these foreign governments who have declared us their enemies have hacked our stuff and got our sensitive information. And it's, it goes on the nose cycle and about 48 hours later, hardly anybody talks about it. Or like a huge one, like a solar winds at two months later, you don't hear another thing about it. Right. When it has the sensitivity to have been like potentially catastrophic with, you know, so I read social engineering books for fun. Okay. Right. <laughs> and like, you think about how like you don't have to actually be that good a hacker if you can hack the humans and you can get them to tell you the password that's on the sticky note on their computer monitor, right? Well, you take the kind of sensitive information of who's who that they get from a hack like that with like some pretty minor social engineering that any like college actor could pull off with a little bit of practice. And like, I think that 9-11, we all felt pretty safe at home. You know, you, you hear about USS Cole, you hear about, you know, the different bombings in Northern Africa that happened in the late 90s, sad loss of life, but you didn't feel it at home. So it kind of seemed like a movie. At least yeah. I was, I was a kid back then. I was a teenager in the nineties. If I heard about any of those things, it was kind of like, it's kind of like a movie. It's kind of like a TV show. Cause it was only on TV, you know, I don't know. I, I, so my question for you is this, how, when you think about ways 
to get today's smartest thinkers and today's most innovative brains to help us prevent a cyber 9-11 or an infrastructure 9-11 or one of these things. Do you have any thoughts on how to help people want to solve that problem before it happens so it doesn't take several thousand dead to wake up a country? No, just thanks for that question. Then that's really, you just hit on a really the essence of the, the motivation for the work that, that I did with Steve Blank and Pete Moore and Hacking for Defense and, and subsequently establishing this new center. But I think it, a lot of it is raising awareness and, and recognizing that they're, you know, for example, like when we advertised a class called Hacking for Defense, a lot of students ran the other direction and would dream of taking a class called that. Maybe one of the right, you know, slam pieces in a campus newspaper, you know, wondering why a class like that is taught on our campus. But those that select into these courses and run towards that, the opportunity to contribute and, and help solve these types of problems, those are the individuals that we, we want to target, and not target the wrong word, we want to identify and, and empower and, and, and create opportunities for them to, to, to contribute in ways that, that they, they intrinsically are motivated to do. So, so the, the challenge you mentioned there, I think that here's the good news, that there is a region of, of, of America's larger young people in top town that want to get involved, want to find ways to, you know, at a minimum work on tough and challenging problems, which, the, you know, which our U.S. government has. And, and some of them actually have, and going back to your early uh, comment, there's a certain drain of, there is a certain patriotism that, that we, we tap into in our students that say that, well, because we think America is is a force for good around the world, not not perfect, but but in the aggregate, a force for good around the world. If, it, if it's going to continue to be that force and, and play that, it needs to be strong and capable and and and, and protected, and, and and we need to get behind it and to make sure that we can be the be that 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 nation that that works by with and through our allies and partners to you know to keep this rules based order alive and you know, those that want to do us harm and undermine our sovereignty at bay. Well, I hear myself getting emotional, and I think that I could be discounted as like an alarmist or something. You're Good well, for me, yes. I, I look at like if, you know, you look at Olympic Games, stocks neck, you know, like if we can work with the Israelis and burn out a bunch of Iranian centrifuges, what makes us think they couldn't take down much less sophisticated things of ours if it's all done over the Internet? Oh, you know? yeah, we, well, we know they can. And we've got a lot of people working hard to, to defend us. And, you know, they're the unsung heroes. There's a lot of attacks that, you know, are not publicized or attempts, I should say, that have been thwarted. But, you know, but the saying that, you know, the, the terrorists or the bad guys only have to get, you know, get lucky once, it holds true here. You know, that there's, there's really a, you know, mentioned earlier, let's hope we don't have another catastrophic attack, you know, of a 9-11 or, or greater size of, of casualties to, to get our attention. But, but we do have enemies, state and non-state actors are trying to do us harm and, and, and we need to, you know, respond accordingly and, and defend ourselves. So I just had an idea. I just had an answer for my own question. I want to know what you think of this. Okay. okay. So out here in Utah, we are second behind you guys as the most billion dollar startups per capita behind California. Okay. Yeah. And not, not a lot of people recognize that. But around here, you hear it constantly because it's just, it's shocking these, these you know, people who, well, you know, friend of mine on the show, Alex Bean, we had him on when he raised 30 million. Then we had him on when he raised 250 million. And he's coming back on now because he sold the company for two and a half billion, right? And you're like, well, I've been friends with that guy that whole time. And things didn't change that much for me. But I knew him back then. So could I be like him? And there's this like, it's like the windshield effect. Yeah. Of like, you just keep seeing people who are like, they're smart, they're hardworking. Alex is a great guy, but he, he, he doesn't, he's not like an alien. He's not like a different life form than me. He's just a guy who learned a skill set I haven't learned yet, you know? And I'm sure there's some timing and luck or whatever. And he would probably say that too. But I'm thinking about this idea of attracting more students to take your class. 
Okay. Thank you. We should, uh, we could, if you wanted, run a, run a contest and an award ceremony and fly out some folks from DC, specifically folks who are trying to get reelected and are in charge of budgets to hand out the prizes for the best innovations to these kids that happen to be, you know, startup investments in their startup and then invite a bunch of press. Hey, Jess, uh, if you're offering to, to, to work with us for a good cause, we're, we're, we'd love to follow up with you and stay in touch. But yeah, we... I'm serious. I would help you with that. Great, you know, creating more incentives for our students to, to work, work harder and smarter and, and have more impact. They're intrinsically motivated, but certainly these types of things can can encourage even more more, more effectiveness. I'll, I'll tell you what, we've had a bunch of guys on here who are practitioners of the Toyota production system, you know, lean, operational excellence, yeah. continuous improvement, whatever you want to call it, right? And the guy, Shigeo Shingo, is the first one to get a lot of the Japanese versions of it translated into English. Wanted a, wanted a, he wanted a PhD from Harvard, honorary, and they wouldn't give him one. So this one is called University. the Stanford of the East, as we say here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, so this Utah University is like, we'll give you one. So Utah State University gives him this honorary PhD. And then they, he lets them use his name because he's the most famous guy in America 30, 40 years ago for lead. Okay. Yeah. When it first got here, they let him use his name. And for the last 30 years, they've been running the Shingo Prize, which is essentially the Nobel Prize of lean. Okay. Right. You can't believe how much these companies, so Volvos and Fords and medical companies and finance companies, how much money they spend to help all of their staff actually get involved in like, it's almost a special forces mindset of like, let's let the person closest to the problem suggest the answer. Yeah. Kind of an yep. idea. Okay. But it's like a business of that, right? You can't believe like I, so I've done site tours all across the country. I, I go, I was heavily involved with the Shingo Institute for a while. So I would go like on assessments or go on tours. You see these companies, and you're like, so how much more money are you making because of the mindset around here? And they're like, oh, this process, this process used to take six months. We've been continually improving it for X number of years now. We're down to 60 minutes. I saw the same guy speak two years later and he said, we're down to 30 minutes. Wow. And like, you start looking at the multiple that does for their cash flows, right? Nope. They want to win the prize. You can't believe how much money they'll spend and how much activated they'll yeah. be for winning the prize. It's like, <laughs> the prize doesn't pay. You actually, have to, you actually have to pay to apply for the prize. But it's this rallying cry and it's this public and there's all this feeling of belonging and, and it's an event to rally folk. So I became a convert to Invent Your Own Contest. You know, one of our big... One of our big clients is the renewable energy division at Bloomberg that does all the climate stuff called Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And I was a client a dozen years ago, and now they're a client of mine, which is kind of fun. But those, their leaderboards and their contests are extremely motivating across their community. So I'm totally down to help you invent one. So look, look forward to, w welcome to the insurgency there. You know, you've been a part of it in a lot of ways, but we, we'd love for the chance to work with you on this. So th thanks. Well, listen, you know, we, by the way, what were your degrees at Harvard and Stanford? So Harvard, I did a, a, a master's in public administration. I was still active military and I did a focus on a negotiations and conflict resolution. And then at Stanford, I, my, I wrote, uh, my dissertation was on a broadly effective counterinsurgency strategy. I, it was called taking guns to a knife fight, which is a little play on words. So, so that was uh, in preparation. I went on to run a, a combating terrorism center at West Point, and they, oh, really? fortuitously, they they came with a funded PhD. So I'm very grateful to the American taxpayers for the opportunities to get those those degrees while I'm still in active duty, and I hope I can pay it forward. So, and what is your Stanford? PhD? It's in political science, but it, I, I wrote on uh, effective counterinsurgency strategies. Oh, okay, and we haven't even talked about, and I'm going to get this title wrong: Deputy Under Secretary. Yeah. 
But so I, I, I was here at Stanford and then when, when Jim Mattis was nominated the defense secretary, he was also here on campus. He, he, he called me up one morning, like at 6 AM and I, I thought he was in DC, but he asked me to come in and talk to him and he was in his office. I came in and he, he, uh, he, he said that, you know, he was going to accept the, the president-elect's invitation to, 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 to be his defense secretary. He wanted me to join his team and asked me where I thought I could help best. And I, I suggested maybe something in the Pacific region or, or in the special operations, low intensity conflict side. So, uh, but I spent a lot of time in the Indo-Pacific region professionally and, 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 and in my own research. So uh, he, he gave me the, the South Asia, Southeast Asia, Oceania portfolios, which at the time we were kind of introducing our new national defense strategy of, you know, we're competing with China and, and we're doing by what's into our allies and partners. So it was, it was a really exciting time, but yeah, I was, uh, I was responsible for, you know, the defense and, and policy relationship in, in the countries of that region. And uh, again, working for then Secretary Mattis is just a dream come true. He's just one of our, our great, great leaders and got close to the team and the mission. So even after he left, I stayed on there for, for about two and a half years total. Oh, really? Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're running out of time. I've got so many more questions. Maybe, maybe my last question on that subject would be, when you think about that time, what's one of the, what's one of the most important lessons that you've, you brought to your future work from that time? Well, I think we're both at the risk of getting on the soapbox, but I, I was encouraged by going to travel to probably over 30 countries in, in, in the portfolio at the time, depending on how you count some of the island countries. And there was still a demand, a thirst for, for U.S. leadership across the region that, that we, we, we never, I never asked countries to choose between U.S. and China, but, but to choose a vision for their future and, and to choose to work with those partners that, that are going to help them achieve that vision. And, and it was just encouraging to see that despite all our challenges, despite, you know, there was people had a real problem with, with some of the, you know, the tweets coming out of the White House at the time, but, 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 but the, the investment the U.S. has made, you know, certainly after World War II and all the sacrifice, it, it, it matters. And in that our, there is still a thirst for U.S. leadership in the region, but if, you know, we, we need to make sure we're there and that, that, that if, if we want to be an option, we need to make sure that, you know, we have presence and, and commitment. So I guess my, my takeaway was U.S. reputation that was earned by so much sacrifice, you know, blood and treasure over the decade is, is still paying dividends that, 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 that U.S. leadership is still in demand, but we need, we need to, we need to show up. We need to, we need to provide that leadership in ways that, that countries can benefit from. Because if, if we don't, you know, the alternative is right there in this case with China. So it was, uh, I, I guess, I left the experience feeling good about America and, and its and, and, and its reputation in the world, but also a sense of responsibility to make sure we don't squander that position because it, it will erode, you know, our relationships aren't, aren't going to endure without the types of investments that, that, are, that we need. And we need to treat these allies and partners with, with respect and, and make sure that we cultivate those relationships and that, that we invest in them and don't, we can't expect them to, to be maintained without that investment. That's a really interesting perspective. I, I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have known that was going to be your answer, but I like that answer. I, I've got one more idea for you to pass on to your, your friends who are still running things over there. Thanks. I, I got to go, my client at SOCOM took me, they got to ask, we got to go, when Nigerian Special Operations Command was getting stood up, they were going over for a week and it was basically a whole long, it was like 10 days of, here's the mistakes we made in Iraq, here's the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. It'd be really great if you guys don't make those same mistakes with Boko Haram because we'd rather not have to come help, kind of, okay? And it was the most interesting thing. So I brought this 25-year seal, seal with me and we taught a kind of like, kind of the efficiencies of treating humans like humans and, you know, very coin kind of kind of centric stuff, right? And there, we brought this Islamic law scholar from Illinois with us and uh, SF guys. And it was a really interesting thing and so divided. They had generals who just couldn't get enough of it. And then other generals who are like, if we have to kill, if we have to kill 300 innocent to get one terrorist, so be it. And you're just like, oh man, that is not, 
that is not a recipe for winning a population. You know what I mean? And so it was, it was encouraging and disappointing at the same time. But my, my question to them was my counterinsurgency idea of what did they think about having American entrepreneurs come teach how to get ahead economically to build friends in those communities? And I was asking them, would it have to be, would it have to be Muslim Americans? Or do you think regular Americans could come? And it was kind of split. About half the folks thought, because, you know, this would be going out to, to eastern Nigeria. But I had a 100% uptake of the Nigerians felt like that would actually be a really great way to win kind of some of this disaffected population back is showing up and helping them figure out how to feed their family. And, like, and, and about half of them felt like it would be a lot better if they could be Muslim Americans doing that. And the other half said, no, I think they'd take the help whatever they could get. Yeah. So we should send some Stanford students on, on entrepreneurial missions across Southeast Asia and help people feed their families. Hey, you know, I, what was the Woody Allen quote? A lot of life is just a lot of 90% of life is about showing up. I, I think uh, I think the more, more interaction is, is is great. And I know our students would, would love to get out there. Well, I, I've done too much talking on this episode. So I want to close it off with open mic for you. You get interviewed a lot. There's a lot of people who want to know what you think. What's a question you don't get asked enough? Or what's something we didn't cover we should have? Gosh, just a lot of broad topics. So I, I, I can, I guess, you know, maybe to try to relate it back to, to what, what we're doing here at Stanford, what you know, the work I've done with, with, with you know, our, our mutual friends, Steve Bike and others, you know, what, you know why, why are we doing it? You know, what, what, I guess why, you know, I, I think, you know, we have all the challenges of, of a startup here without the upside of an exit, right? So why do, why do we work so hard? You know, I'm not going to be telling you about my $300 million round, my billion dollar round, and, but I would just say without sounding t- t- too dramatic, you know, we're at a point where, you know, we, Ukraine, I think underscores this, but there is such thing as good and evil. I mean, so the question is why, why do we do this? Why do we work so hard in, in these, I won't call them philanthropic, but working in universities and, and, and trying to build organizations like the Gordy Knott Center, which, which, you know, we need 10 years in to be profitable. The 10 years is to have impact and, and, and affect people and empower people to, to do good. And I, and I just think, stating the obvious, but it's, it's exactly that. There's States are just too high. You know, the, all the, 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 the opportunities and, 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 and everything we enjoy here as, you know, certainly as Americans and, and, and the, the, the world that America has helped secure, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it takes investment. It takes, it takes, it takes a, a lot of effort to, to, to sustain it. Cause there are those, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we have a vision that, that's shared by other countries, you know, as far as, you know, maintaining this rules-based order, but other countries like China have a vision, you know, and, and our, our vision is embraced and, and by, by other countries where, you know, there's alternative visions out there that, that are very different, like, like China's and, and, and those, their vision has to be, you know, imposed and, and coerced, and, but that can happen. And the, the thing that's going to change it is, you know, can we bring our best and brightest to the table to make sure that we're, we're trying to solve our toughest challenges and, and, and without leaving any resources behind. And, you know, when I look at this, uh, maybe I'm going on a little bit too long here. When I look at the U.S.-China competition, it can be daunting by a number of metrics, but if you look at, you know, not just the U.S., but the U.S. and all those who, who share the same vision for, for, for the future of the U.S., it, it looks a little more promising if we can bring them to the table. And if we can bring all our resources to the table, if, if we don't, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm in on Stanford campus right now, just an, an amazing density of town. If, if we don't create opportunities to get our best and brightest, the opportunity to work on these tough challenges, you know, shame on us because the states are too or not too, and that's we're committed to doing so. I guess the question I'm asked is why do we do it? I think because we can't afford not to. And there are there are there are rewards beyond a, a healthy exit that, that keep us motivated and then people you know like like Steve Bright, Pete Moore's and I and, and my colleagues here work, working hard to, to make sure that we we bring our resources to the table and, and defend that all we hold dear and we make sure that US can remain a force for good in the world that it has uh, you know for, for so many decades. Well, okay. Do you have time for one more question? Right, plenty of time here. Plenty of time. I don't, okay. I don't teach so, before, so I'm 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 wide open. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, I'm just thinking about this, like, 
you know, I got to go. So the the hospital at West Point was a client. Really? And I got to go out there with the colonel and help her I, get training. Last week, I, I have a son who's a freshman, a son who's a senior there. So, Yeah. And by the way, Gorge, so I went and saw friends in the city in Manhattan and then decided to drive out. Nice. That's a gorgeous drive. Like, I had no idea. It is. Well, glad you made up there. It's a special place for, for all Americans. But I I look at, and I really did not have an appreciation of how much like a castle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a legit castle. But my question is, you think back to, you know, I don't know, 1989 or something, lieutenant, right? And there's other lieutenants who went in at the same time as you, who would have liked to have done really incredible things with their career and reached the levels that you've reached and done these things that, that didn't. And my question is, when you think about the level of success that you've achieved that so many others haven't, what do you think are some of the main reasons for that? Well, just thanks. I mean, with all humility, I mean, I, I, a lot of luck and timing, a lot of, you know, great mentors. I mean, I feel very privileged to to have some great opportunities. But I, I, I would say, when, if, when you're talking strictly military, the real the real act of selfless service, I think, is when, when, when you raise your hand and, and, and you, you take an oath, whatever, whatever entry level is to you know, support and defend the Constitution, you know, and you're basically writing a blank check that, you know, payable with your, with your own life. So I think that's the real act. Of, what happens after that? Yeah, it's hard work. Matt, but, but a lot of a lot of things in life are are who, who, luck and timing. But I feel very blessed and privileged. I've worked with with some some amazing people. I had some amazing mentors and had a chance to to serve and contribute. You can do it a whole lot of ways. And some of them are very. You can some of them come with titles and, and positions, but some of them just come with impact and, and mentorship and, and affecting people in important ways. And that, that's manifested maybe in ways that don't aren't aren't as directly associated with your yourself, but but are nonetheless significant in, in so many important ways. And and where I will completely agree with you on things like timing and luck and and that so many people contribute in much less visible ways that are just as important you know like basically nobody around here knows my grandpa's name but he was like a second he was like a third parent in my family and like kind of the most important person for me at so many times in my life right and i'm glad he wasn't the secretary of defense because he wouldn't have been home to to set an example for me right and at the same time i want to talk about how many people started a phd and not finished it how many people didn't get a call from General Mattis, can you come help me as in being in charge of defense for this entire country that, that are not running a center at Stanford? And so when you've come up against different choices or, or when things have gotten tough, like what do you tell yourself that maybe not everyone else is telling themselves? What, do you, what are some of the actions you, you've taken that maybe you don't see everyone else taking? You know, I, I don't want to get religious. I, I just, just, but I do feel really blessed with, with so much. I've been, I feel like I've been blessed with, with, with a lot of, with a lot. And, and I feel that that's an obligation to, 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 to give something back. And I've, I've chosen some ways to do it that, that resonate with me. And, and I hope it's making a difference. But yeah, life's short. It's, you, you only get one shot at this, as far as we know. And you want to make sure you don't leave anything on the table and you do all you can to contribute. And I certainly feel very fortunate to have been given some great, great opportunities. And, and, but I look at that as a, as an obligation to, 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 to pay it forward. Well, I'm, I'm a super churchy guy myself. And so I, I definitely believe in blessings. And, and, and yet I don't believe that it like happens to us like fate. You, there was times when your PhD was killing you and you thought, am I really doing this? There, you know, there were, there were decisions that you made that created the, the reputation and the friendships that led General Mattis to call you. And, and that's what I'm asking about is like, just, you just the hard things you did the, or the, or the, you just don't want to disappoint all the people that supported you and helped make some of those opportunities possible. You think about, you know, having to tell, you know, I remember General Wayne Downing, or you may be familiar with that name, wrote me this amazing letter for, for, for graduate school. And if I had to tell him I didn't, I didn't finish it, you know, despite his going to the, the mat for me, I just, that would never want to do that, you know, or, or, uh, you know, being out there in theater and, and 
you know, after Secretary Mattis gave this great platform to go out there and represent America in, 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 in the Indo-Pacific region and not deliver, I, you just don't want to be that, that person, you know, so it's, you, you feel it's, you're humbled by the opportunity, but, but you translate that into to a, a drive to, to don't disappoint and, and don't squander that, that opportunity because, you know, you'll be in, people are depending on you to, 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 uh, to give, give a hundred percent and, and accomplish your mission. You know, I, I can actually appreciate that. I think about that same grandpa I was telling you about. I moved to this little farm town that our family's been in for a hundred years when I was like 10. And I was like a rebellious action sports, like snowboarder, skateboarder, artist, right? And, and my friends were getting in all sorts of trouble. And like one of the reasons I didn't get in trouble with them is I really didn't want to disappoint my grandpa. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, that, was a, that was a real thing for me. And I don't usually tell people this. I've tried to quit child rescue like legitimately two times, maybe three times, but legitimately two times just been like, you know, like now's not the time. I just, I need a break. I don't want to do this. I, you know, and I just feel like pressing on me. Like I can't like... It sounds like hyperbole or something weird, but like I tried to quit it and I felt like really accountable. Like if we're getting all churchy, I feel like when I kick the bucket and I, and I get to meet the big guy in the sky, he's going to ask me like all the questions, yeah. the standard questions. How'd you do as a husband? How'd you do as a father? How'd you do for, for, you know, relieving unnecessary suffering or things like that? And I feel like I'm going to get this bonus question of like, Hey, you remember how I kept giving you all those things that you know, you're supposed to help those kids. How'd you do on that? <laughs> <laughs> and I can't get rid of that feeling. So then how can I not work on it? And and I feel tons of guilt for not having accomplished more yet. But anyways, I don't know if that relates at all to some of your feelings. It's really but... that and to, to do good. You know, conscious can be, it can be a burden, but it can also be a force for like, just never letting yourself, you know, do anything less than your, your, your very best. But, you know, the idea of the idea of care for others is is not just an incredible motivation, but it, it's like a two for unhappiness because it makes them happy and us happy. Yeah. You know, like buying fancy stuff is really fun for a short amount of time, but it goes away and it only made one person happy. Right. Like selfless service is is kind of a double whammy. Yeah. Just I'm here and, you know, it, the concentration of wealth here at Silicon Valley is huge. And, you know, I made some choices that I, I but I, I, I just say I, I'm the lucky one. I feel like I've had a chance to, to have some impact that I feel incredibly fortunate, you know, and, and, and that those, those rewards are you know, beyond any material rewards I can think of. So I, I'm I, like you said, it's, it goes both ways. I, I feel very fortunate to have been in some positions and work with people that established things like the Gordon Center that I, I think are doing some good. Well, since you said I could go over time, maybe we'll end with this. Can you tell me about one of the student success stories that just makes you happy to be there? Wow, there's just so so many many. You know, let me let me profile the assistant director of our center, David Hoyt, who just got married last week. As a matter of fact, he was my thesis. And I advised him for his. He was an undergraduate ten years ago, and I advised him for his senior thesis. I mean, this is a guy who dropped out of high school, worked for seven years from New Jersey, went back to junior college or community college, applied to Stanford, got in, came out here. I remember he, I, he wrote like a three hundred plus page honor thesis, which was in a very <laughs> not a lot of time, which is another story. Then he went on to get a work for General McChrystal, his consulting group, but then came back to Stanford and got a, a law degree and a business degree. But uh, success stories, I would say, here's a guy with a Stanford JD MBA, Stanford undergrad, tremendous opportunity. I did have a personal relationship with him, but I talked about our vision. He took, he, as, a, as a graduate student and just afterwards, he took one of our classes and I talked about the vision for the center. And here's a guy that talked about the opportunity 
opportunity cost for coming on board. He said, I want to get involved with that. You know, I want, I want to make that difference with you, Joe. And I was like, wow, fantastic. This is one hell of a qualified guy. So I can tell you so many success stories, but here's an individual with, with nothing but with potential, you know, to get highly compensated positions. But he, he's had, he shared that vision that we have for the center, the impact we were going to have for students and in, in, in the broader, you know, USG and, and, and beyond. And, and he's our mortgage assistant director, which, you know, probably make him just a fraction of what his, his options were. And if his wife listens to this, she's probably going to be wondering why he's not out there making a, you know, 10X. <laughs> we're paying him with karma and impact. So, so there's an example of just a big shout out to, to David Hoy. But so many of our students who come in and, and just to see them day one, they didn't know that they could translate their talents and, 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 and their skill sets, you know, to further the good of, of, our, of our national security and, and, and the broader good uh, for, 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 for the U.S. government. It's great to see the light turn on and see them motivated. And so many of them have gone on to start companies and, and continue to do well. I can tell you a number of our, of our student teams have gone on to form companies and are doing quite well now. One, Capella's face is actually providing imagery that's helping us in the war in Ukraine. And they were, they were, they were you know, multi-million dollar company. I, I forget what they're valued at now, but they, they started in, in, in our course. As a matter of fact, Steve Blank, I almost didn't let him in because they didn't follow the the, uh, the format for, for the application. But fortunately, he, he had a second. What's, what's that company? That's called Capella Space. And they, they were in our first hacking for defense class back in 2016. And now, again, I know where the valuation is now, but they're, they're a big player, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and we know the reason they were there helping with the Ukraine effort, provide the imagery that, 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 that Ukraine needed, to, you know, basically democratizing access to overhead imagery in, in ways that just changed the game. And, and so many other companies. So that, that's what keeps us motivated and inspired on so many, so many students that, you know, whether they go, even if they don't, they, they go on to, into their, their, their careers with, with an awareness and appreciation for the importance of, uh, of, of our national security and then making sure that we, we we invest in it. And maybe down the road when they sell their company for a few billion dollars, maybe they can support some good causes. But there, there's lots of ways to get involved with public service. And we like to think that our, our Golden Knot Center is, is creating those opportunities and, and empowering students to, to pursue those opportunities in ways that they may not otherwise have had the chance to do. Yeah, those guys sound great. We should have them on the show. Please do. Matter of fact, we'll get David on here. He's, he's, he's extraordinary. That's great. Well, listen, people who have been inspired listening to you today, they want to be supportive or get involved or anything like this or, or just learn more. Where the, should they go to the website? What, what should they do? Yeah, great question. We, we've got a website. You know, we, are, you know, we are at Stanford University. And there, there's ways to support us through Stanford. And, you know, whether it's, you know, there's a whole lot of ways you can support. And, and, and we're, we're looking for, you know, for mentors. Uh, we're looking, obviously, you know, material support can, can't hurt. You can do more for more. But we do have a website. Uh, and I'll make sure that you have that, Jess, and, uh, you know, we're, we're we're a startup, but we're, we're building and growing, we're scaling, and we, we want to make a difference. And the more yeah. you get involved, the better. Is there is there somebody there that they should be emailing? Like who, who, like if they do have ideas or resources or things like this, is there somebody who handles the incoming side of that? Or Yeah, we're still small enough where I, I can certainly be on the recipient there. And we, we, we just hired uh, one of our program administrators, Molly Campbell, who was uh, going to be taking lead on, on, on some of those efforts. Uh, but please reach out to me directly and, and, and or some of our, 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 our senior staff, which will to on the website and uh, you know, would welcome any interest in, in getting behind some of the good causes we're, we're getting after in a range of different ways. And is the best way for that for them to just find you on LinkedIn or, or what would be the best way for them to reach out to you or yeah. through the Gordon Knott Center? LinkedIn works and, and I'm on the Gordon Knott Center splash page at jfelter at okay. and I appreciate the chance to you know to solicit any interest and in, in get behind what we're doing, Jess. That's great. Well, thanks again for doing this. Thank you for all you're doing, Jess. Thanks for a chance to talk about you know, our efforts here and the, the great team we're working with and the, you know, the, the cause I think we all think are important are all coming, getting behind her in our own way. Great. Well, bye everyone. Thanks for listening.